Joining me for this discussion is one guest only, Catherine Austin Fitz. She is the president of Solary and the publisher of the Solary Report, which provides investment consultation for shifting wealth away from financial institutions like Goldman Sachs and Bank of America that do not act upon our best interest. Earlier, she served as a managing director and a board member of the Wall Street Investment Bank, Dylan Reed. She was Assistant Secretary of Housing and Federal Housing Commissioner at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development during the first Bush administration. She has a long-standing issue with the truth. She just doesn't seem to be willing to compromise on it. And for that, she has uh, a long list of people who don't like her. Well, that immediately brings her to this show because we do like people who speak truth to power. Her website is solary.com, S-O-L-A-R-I. Nice have you back with us, Catherine. Nice being back, Gary. As you know, I, I like to give my guests an enormous amount of time to lay out their thoughts without being interrupted with petty conversation. However, I do start by giving a, a rather detailed comprehensive overview of my concerns and then take any part of my concerns and address them uh, as you will, all right? Okay. Here are my concerns. They are all interrelated. First, I'm concerned that virtually all the pundits saying that we're not in a recession are not speaking to all the American public. Indeed, about 70 million Americans are not, but we don't have one economy. We have seven economies. The super right. wealthy, the billionaire class, the 200 million to 500 million class, the one to 10 million dollar class, the upper middle class that is generally more conservative financially, tends to be more conservative politically. Now they're more often than not living in gated communities in, in Naples, Florida, in Tucson, Arizona, <laughs> etc. Uh, and these people look at the world. They, they were part of helping it, helping our society for the best and worst of what we become. But they're not currently engaged in it. Outside of just watching TV and radio and reading, they're not out there marching. They're not going to change their life. They're not going to change anything. Then you have the professional class, lawyers, engineers, uh, architects, um, the professors. Uh, some, of course, are protected because of tenure. Others are not. And then you have your middle class, historically the largest single segment, but today broken into three different divisions. The middle class, it still is able to work frequently as bureaucrats or teachers or where they have some protection. And those who are working in union jobs uh, that are still viable with some protections. Then you have those that are not. They've been downsized, their jobs outsourced. They are having to work two jobs simultaneously. They remember in 1945 when they were born or after that that there was one breadwinner in the family and the other member of the family, more often than not the the wife, spent her time raising the children, um, taking care of the social issues in the house, and doing most of the uh, financing, meaning she handled the purse strings. Then, by 1975, with the largest wealthy group of middle-class Americans in our history, where we actually had savings, college educations, homes paid for, 
everything began to change, and then you had to have two breadwinners in order to make the same standard of living. But then by 2000, that had radically changed, and now you have two breadwinners who, working together, cannot pay their expenses, so they've accumulated debt, and their children are deeply in debt, but they're responsible. They hold the note for the student loan. They co-signed on it as the responsible person. And now they're living off credit cards, and their mortgages are more often than not 55% are all under water. 12 million mortgages have been foreclosed on. 44 million Americans have had to leave their domicile and find some other place to live. So when I look at the economies, I see each and every one of these people having to cope differently, contributing differently, and whose outcome is going to be substantially different than the other. So while one person on the Upper West Side is having a latte right now and talking about their stock portfolios and where they're going to winter in aspirin and go skiing, someone else on the Lower East Side is wondering how many more people can they fit into a one-bedroom apartment before someone finds out. So we don't have anyone talking about the true nature of our economic situation. That's a big issue for me. Separately, I started tracking this in the 1970s when T. Boone Pickens, Michael Milken, Carl Icahn, Ivan Botsky, and uh, Steinberg uh, the insurance company, all began to engage in green mailing um, and and real, real financial huckstering, uh, junk bonds, and uh, corporate takeover, corporate rating. And that, of course, has segued into one of these seamless Teflon equity partnership deals where they make money by buying a company, stripping off its assets, or building it up for a year, taking out big loans, keeping the loans and saddling the corporation with debt. The average lifespan is seven years and two months, and it's worse today. Look at Lennon and things, look at Circuit City. And then I see them taking over factories. We lose one factory just about every 45 minutes in the United States, over 36 factories a day, 58,327 factories closed since 2000. These are almost always where corporations have taken those factories, closed them down, outsourced it to another country, bringing back in on cheap dollars and that foreign other currency, depressing the currency in other countries like China, where they can bring in an item that used to be made, a bicycle, for $60 in the United States. They bring it back in and retail it for 50 And so American workers cannot compete. And I believe that the American workforce is not only not coming back, except for cheap labor, but the, the, the class has been fairly well protected. The educated class, the professional class, are now going to be decimated by people willing to work with no guarantees, no bonuses, half the salary, and uh, coming in from India, South Korea, Taiwan, and other places with equal degrees and background, just willing to work cheap, and corporate America is bringing them in by the millions, 8.4 million. We don't even talk about that. So I see no new job factories coming back. I see a stimulus plan that only benefits those smart enough to be in the circle of the Fed and get it with zero interest. I see that as a Ponzi scheme. I see the entire federal financial system as a Ponzi scheme. I believe that we were lied to, and all these major banks should have been allowed to go through structural uh, uh, bankruptcy, and we didn't do it. We were lied to by both the left and the right. And I see no relief in sight for homeowners, credit card owners, 
student debt, the average person, and that's where we begin our conversation. The forum is yours. <laughs> well, I feel like I'm staring at a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I, I think I said this to you the last time we talked, if I could encourage somebody to read uh, or to watch one video and read one uh, book that describes what happened. The video would be um, a wonderful interview that Sir James Goldsmith gave to Charlie Rose in 1994. He came to this country and said, if we pass the Uruguay round of GATS, we are inviting insanity, and uh, including all the things you just described about the middle class being steamrolled and kind of wiped out in, the, in both Europe and the United States, as well as, you know, what could happen um, globally with literally two to three billion farmers and their families moved off the land as we industrialized the food system. And it's a, it's a wonderful interview by an absolutely brilliant man trying to warn people about what was just about to come. It was sort of the galactic version of what Ross Perot said when he talked about the um, – you know, the giant sucking sound. And that's about the rebalancing of the cost of labor globally. And what we're watching, Gary, is an unprecedented historic shift between the relationship between capital and labor, all in the favor of capital against labor. Um, and part of this shift, in fact, it's interesting, because as you know, the, the, um, the central banks just started a new round of quantitative easing saying that it was going to ease unemployment, that's the opposite. The way they've prevented hyperinflation from happening is to constantly offset monetary inflation with by lowering the value of labor, and it's a double-edged sword for most people, and this is how the middle class is getting squeezed because the debasement of the currency is causing the value of our assets to go down and our expenses to go up at the same time that the jobs are being outsourced globally. So, yes, we are having labor pitted against labor globally. It started in the manufacturing jobs, but it's moving upstairs into the more skilled labor. And it's a process you'll see uh, the, the phrase referred to in many different economic forms, rebalancing. We're rebalancing the economy globally, and it means, you know, whether it's money or labor, everybody's pitted against everybody else, and it's quite a transition. The other thing that's happening, and it's interesting because there's going to be a cross-cut of jobs flowing back to the United States, in fact, in manufacturing, and that is technology means that things that we used to do, um, you know, that a human would do a year ago, now a machine can do. And so part of the, part of the challenge is not only are we globalizing uh, labor and employment globally, but we're doing it at the same time that, frankly, machines are replacing humans in many, many functions. And normally when that happens, it's wonderful. It means we all have more time to read and talk and go to the beach and learn and study. The reality, though, is as it's happening, the benefits are being centralized um, and they're not being shared broadly. And so I think, you know, we're watching a political question happen at the same time, and that is, uh, you know, how are the benefits of all this autom automation technology going to be broadly shared and build a better society as opposed to make a few people rich? Now, um, the second thing I said to so that, my first choice video would be Sir James Goldsmith. Um, the second 
thing I would recommend is I wrote an article, which is an it's really an online book called Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits. And it starts out with my the firm I was a partner in a Wall Street firm named Dylan Reed. And I have to confess, since you use Goldman Sachs, I was a summer intern at Goldman Sachs, Barry, so. <laughs> I don't want to misrepresent my background. And um, uh, and those, are you there? I'm listening with great interest. Okay. I never know when the, when the United States telephone system hangs up on <laughs> So I like to check. Anyway, so Dillery and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits, one of the things I discovered when I started to try and warn my friends and family about what was happening, particularly with respect to the housing and debt bubble, was that many people didn't understand how all these shenanigans are engineered. And so, uh, you know, when you go to business school, I went to Morton Business School, when you go to business school, you have something called a case study. So I said, okay, I'm going to write a case study and show you how highly uneconomic centralization of the economy is rigged with government money to help private companies engineer it in a way that makes money. And it tells the story of a private prison company that was started up by Dylan Reed at the beginning of the 90s and then financed with, you know, just a wealth of contracts from the federal government. And it walks you through the financial engineering of one company and one industry and shows you how you can create perverse incentives so that the more people fail, the more people who fail and go to prison and the more money taxpayers lose paying for that, the more the stockholders make money and the private investors make money in the stock market. So I show you, you know, we had reached a point in the 90s when prison companies were trading on a per-bed basis, and you would literally go to their websites and they would flash the number of beds. So every time you changed a law that would cause more people to be arrested and need to be thrown into prison, then the value of those stocks would go up. So you created a very, very perverse incentive system where, you know, the economy is driving to do things that make money on the, on people's failure as opposed to their, their success. So, so the, the reason I would recommend these two things, another reason I would recommend is they make it very clear that the centralization of economic power was a plan. Um, so we knew in the 90s, I had been Assistant Secretary of Housing in the first Bush administration and then had started a company that had later been hired back on competitive bid by the Department of Housing and Urban Development to be their lead financial advisor on the on some of the housing stuff at FHA. And so we knew that these things were underway and new technology and globalization meant that the middle class was under pressure. And the number one concern at that time, in fact, was how do we make sure the pension funds succeed at at providing for Americans in their retirement? Because the question was, how do we preserve and grow the retirement savings? All their lives, the baby boomers, both in North America and in Europe, in the developed world, have been putting money in, putting money in, putting money in into the, whether it's the private pension funds or the state and local and governmental pension funds and um, and Social Security and a variety of private savings plans like IRAs and 401Ks. So they've been putting money in, and that money has been financing the rise of the multinational corporation and these huge government deficits, but it, it didn't. You know, you didn't have to be a genius to realize where people were going to want to retire and they were going to start wanting to spend down, you know, to get that money back. So how are we going to make sure that their pension savings grew? So all of this was understood and known. 
And in fact, I was part of a group of people, and this is what I described in the Dylan Reed story, that were putting forward plans for here's how we can do it. Here's how we can re-engineer the federal budget and allow technology to flow investment into places, including counties in America, and you could create enormous wealth, because I have to tell you the big secret in all of this, Gary, is that the current wealth in our society, whether it's in the developed world or globally, the current wealth is a tiny percent of what it could be. Um, And part of it is so many of our governmental policies and our economy are are run to facilitate central control as as opposed to optimize wealth, whether it's living wealth or financial wealth. And, in fact, you can change the incentive systems on the um, how government money, credit, and uh, other resources are organized to create, to completely flip the incentive systems. So, in fact, investors could get very wealthy from healing the environment um, or from helping kids, you know, be architects and scientists instead of drug dealers. So um, it's absolutely possible to heal heal the, whether it's the environmental damage or the damage caused by poverty um, to people. It's absolutely possible to have a very advanced culture and economy given the resources of this beautiful planet. Um, And that's why I always say we don't have economic problems, we have political problems. And ultimately the political question is who's in charge and why are they behaving this way? The question I've spent my lifetime trying to answer and I still, you know, I have to admit that the face of Oz is still a mystery. But, um, you know, we have a political problem and our economy is extremely under-optimized, and at the heart of it is the federal budget, because so much of this is rigged through government money. And if you look at government policies over the last 20 years, it has been very much uh, a policy of the federal government to lead the, the engineering of centralization of the economy. Now, some of that is because... Uh, Relative to Asia, we are a smaller area of the world than the rest of the world, and trying to maintain our competitive stance globally um, has taken a lot of military expenditure and a lot of sort of promoting the biggest uh, assets and institutions we have. So part of it is there's pressure to grow so we can, can compete globally, but part of it truly is because as a few people get sort of advanced knowledge of what's coming and control and ownership is the most advanced technology, it's frankly the nature of of those groups and this tendency is at every layer of the society um, to take advantage of it. Okay. I would... I want to interject a few things here. Okay. First, I would share this thought. Um, who was it? It's an old Jewish proverb that says, a wise man hears one word and understands two. And I believe that the average person doesn't understand that unless you're a dynamic individual and become a policymaker or an opinion leader, you're playing in a game that you have no control over the rules. And today, unlike for 
almost 60 years where they were forced to play by some rules where where there was proper representation and where wealth was spent in a community and the egos of those people who were the champions of these industries, steel, uh, computers like IBM, they prided themselves on leaving a legacy. And how they impacted their community was a part of that. They went to the same church as the people that worked in their factories. All that changed with those five people. I counted 29 million jobs taken away through uh, outsourcing and for uh, closing them down and equity partnerships, loading them up with debt. None of that was on anyone's radar. It was there. You could verify it for yourself. But up through 2000, you could pretty much absorb some of those, if not in the same industry, in a different industry, so the people didn't see a giant jump in the unemployment rate. But now... Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play bad guy now, Gary. Okay, go ahead. I'm going to play bad guy because... Um, Okay, so so let me just ask you an off a bit of an off color question. Sure. If if I were to send to my five best friends an email marked confidential, describing how every woman could have as many orgasms as she wanted, and every man could have as many erections as he wanted, mm-hmm. and I said, whatever you do, don't share this with anyone. How long do you think it would take until everybody on the planet had a copy of it? before you could blink that okay. supports what i'm saying until well, such but here's the thing all these warnings people risk their lives risk their fortunes to warn people of everything that was going on everything i can't tell you how many brave souls there were certainly before 2000 who did everything they could in their power to warn people and and the reality is if we're going to find real solutions, we have to face the real problem. And the real problem was as long as the good times were rolling and people were making money and their cash flow was up, they didn't want to hear it. I agree with now, you. Right. It's no different so, than the, if it's no different than the person who will eat the hamburgers, french fries, and pizzas and not take that of a serious consequence that they get their stroke or heart attack, then suddenly they act surprised and act like a victim. Now, let me reverse it. Let's put it this way. Let's say that um, that you're a person who is sends a note out to 10,000 friends in the financial community. I figured out a way that you can make money off money. Forget, forget opening factories or loaning it to small business people where you may or may not get it back. Forget loaning it to people to you know have a mortgage on a house. I'm talking about serious money, derivatives, credit default swaps, uh, trading on currencies. Look, there's going to be some major droughts. We can get in there and we can play with the price of their commodities. We can control it because we actually have divisions that own the largest amounts of land in Africa and in South America. So if they want to eat, they got to buy our product. They want to buy our product. We're going to make massive amounts of money. How long do you think it would be before everyone on Wall Street decided why in the hell do we want to be a financial system for anything other than making money for money where we don't have a downside, we can control it, it's unregulated, we own the politicians, we wrote the laws, and screw the American public, they no longer are irrelevant or essential to our financial success. And I I can't figure out what the question is. How long do you think it would take everybody on Wall Street to want to be a part of that game? 
how long do you think it would take everybody in America? I think most people in America, if they thought the game would work, would go along. That's correct. Everybody wants to be a part of a pyramid scheme until it collapses, then everybody wants to blame everyone else for getting them into it. I say that we... <laughs> right. I say we have become a nation of pathologically dysfunctional people, and it is the exception rather than the rule that you find people who are really conscious enough to ask what is the likely outcome of the choice I'm about to make. Well, so I, I am lucky for many, many years my business has been serving, I call them the people who hold up the world, because what is astonishing to me, Gary, is the number of people in this country who don't respond to that email and really do keep doing, you know, work hard, be disciplined, take care of your parents, take care of your kids, take care of your grandkids, take care of the neighbor kids. Um, I can't tell you how many, you know, most people are fundamentally healthy. And, and there's a certain percentage of them that work very hard, and they really do, they really do hold up the world. Every county, every community is basically being run by them, and they're struggling against amazing odds of the fact that they haven't quit never ceases to amaze me. But They're so about I think 10%. There is, but, but go back to my original concept that I'd like for you to address. Right, okay. right now we're looking at Greece, we're looking at Spain, we're looking at Italy. Italy is already down 3% for the fourth straight year in its gross domestic product. It is it is imploding. Same with Spain at a higher level. Unemployment's astronomical. The value of their dollar is dropping. And the European Central Bank is acting like the Fed. They're just printing fiat currency, a Ponzi scheme. They're bailing well, out Germany. I don't, I don't how's think that, how's that going to help them? How's that going to revive uh, their economy? How is, how is the Fed going to help revive the American economy? Well, but I, Gary, I look at this totally differently. Okay. To me, what is happening is what I call a financial coup d'etat. A decision has been made to re-engineer governance and to re-engineer the economy. Nobody was asked for permission. Nobody was told it was going to happen. But essentially what you're doing is you are reducing the standards. First, first of all, you had a baby boomer generation in both Europe and the United States, and, and their Retirement capital has basically been stolen through the back door and grossly oversimplifying. And now the question is politically, how are you going to clue them into that fact, you know, in a way that gets from here to there? So that's number one. Another decision has been made to basically run the world through corporations. And so assets are being stripped out of government liabilities moved back in. And that's number two. And number three, you're, you're basically broadly reducing standards of living. Part of it is to be more environmentally, you know, in balance. And, and so the middle class is being squeezed out of existence, particularly as you automate. And as you're doing all those things, a decision has been made to consolidate governance, whether it's of the economy or of government, into small hands that are relatively invisible to the average person. And those decisions are a plan. They were made. The reason I said watch Sir James Goldsmith read the Dylan Reed story, these are plans. And, and now, as part of it, one of the challenges of the leadership who's doing this is for 500 years this planet has been run on what I call the central banking warfare model, which is we print money and then the military makes sure that people take that money in exchange for natural resources cheap. And to be a tough guy on the people in the first world, we were perfectly happy to live the life of Riley as long as they were running around and just 
raping the emerging markets. Now a decision has been made to start to invest and bring up the emerging markets, you know, and to let us down, in, in this case, relatively hard. So, so we've been guilty of participating in that rape, and so now it's been reversed on us. But the, the central banking warfare model has been going on for 500 years. In fairness to the people who are engineering the financial coup d'etat, they know that model can't work anymore, particularly with new technology. So it's got to change. And the plan that they have to change it, the financial coup d'etat, assumes the worst of everybody and basically says, okay, it's, you know, it's much safer if we just use this new technology to control everything on a very centralized basis. And the reality is it, it's, it's contingent on the rest of us to come up with an alternative plan that says, no, 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 let's decentralize economic political power. We can learn to live on this planet with each other without this kind of warfare. Okay, let, let's, let's back it up for a moment. You said that this was intentionally engineered. I want to know Absolutely. by who. I want to know by whom and what your evidence is. Secondly, you're suggesting that uh, they've had this their way for 500 years. Who are they? Well, is, the, is, this the, the, is this the Federal Reserve and the regional banks? Who are these people? Who? What are their corporations? And then why is it that they're allowed to print trillions, tens of trillions of dollars, to give to anyone who's in their power circle with no transparency? We would never have known it at all had it not been for Bernie Sanders and, and Ron Paul uh, getting a law passed that, in, that audited the Fed and they did 22,000 transactions in secret that were not a part of quantitative easing, one, two, and yet that's not even con uh, on anyone's talking points. So how much more do they need to steal? How much more power do they need to have when they can call up the Federal Reserve and get any amount of money they want? Goldman's, Goldman Sachs got $840 billion. Uh, 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 Bank of America got $2.2 Citigroup got $2.3 trillion. So, and that was just in that one two-year period. So who are you talking about if not the people who have that much power to give that much money and that much control over uh, the assets and the power for leveraging and power for debt collection. Your thoughts? Okay, so so let's just look at, at let's go back to the bailouts. What were the bailouts from at least the mid '80s until uh, 2006? We know that trillions of dollars of mortgage-backed securities uh, that were fraudulently constructed and issued, or on you know, as well as uneconomically constructed issues, were packaged and marketed. Now, the question is, who got that money? In other words, if if you had securities that were that, that were fraudulently created, you know, who got the money using fraudulent mortgages? And and if they were layered up with derivatives, who got that money? Now, what I would suggest is that that money was not gained by those private financial institutions, that that was done as a matter of, or some of it was done as a matter of policy, because it was done with government credit, and it was done with the leadership of not just the central bank, but the U.S. Treasury, the Department of Justice, the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Remember, all the institutions you just said are member banks of the New York Fed, which serves as the depository of the U.S. government and as manager of the Exchange Stabilization Fund. 
And I think one of the things that's very confusing about a lot of the coverage of the bailout and what happened is it's very hard to tell when you're talking about those institutions as private institutions or those institutions as the people who arrange the financing for the government or those institutions which are not acting on their own account but acting as agent for the U.S. government, one of its agencies, or the Exchange Stabilization Fund. And I think that's... Then what role, if any, do you see the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderbergs, the Trilateral Commission, and other powerful cliques, the Business Roundtable? You see the same interloping members. They're they're frequently on the major corporate boards. They're on these uh, uh, these boards of these private groups. What role do they play? Well, here's my... I can only tell you that the experiences I've had and I've documented them in all these different books and stories that you can find at my website. But here's how, in my personal experience, if I intuit out from from things that have happened to me, I find that policy is set not by the government or government leaders, but by a series of private groups and the Council on Foreign Relations is one, or I wouldn't say the Council on Foreign Relations is, I would say the Executive Committee of the Council on Foreign Relations is one of the key groups in setting uh, policies. So you have a variety of different places of which to, you know, councils one, Bilderbergers are other, there are other groups where groups get together and they build a consensus and make decisions about policies. And then those policies are translated out into actual law regulation or enforcement by um, by government and and by different businesses who work for government. Because right now, one of the things you need to understand is there is no government. The United States government is run operationally by a series of defense and government contractors who control the and, and banks that control the information, the data, and the payment mechanisms. So, in fact, if you elected somebody to president of the United States and he gave an order that was contradictory to those, you know, those policies consensus, he couldn't get them implemented by the government agencies because the defense contractors would refuse to implement them. So you don't have a sovereign government that has information or financial sovereignty. Yes. We're that so there is we're... no government. Okay, so... so, so I, would, I would agree. Well, I, I, let, let's use our semantics here. You're saying there's no government that represents the people. Well, there, first of all, local government does go a long way to representing people. And in fact, one of the things, one of the great tragedies in our society is most of us don't pay attention to local elections. Control is engineered bottom up. So, uh, you know, while we're distracted by national politics that don't translate into real power for us, we're letting people get control of the local operations. So, so local, there's a lot. State and local, there at, at the state level, there's more, but there's still representative government. And then the federal, there's some, but you're up against um, you're up against a financing machinery that is significant, and you're up against, in fact, a bigger problem than money, Gary. Because what this comes down to is we have two groups, and this is at the heart of the federal budget and the financial problems. We have two groups of people in our society. One group who has the power to kill with impunity. 
okay? So they can assassinate a president, they can assassinate a senator, they can assassinate their children and get away with it. No one can touch them, no one can stop them. They are above the law, and they're above the law because they can murder with impunity. They are not subject to the law that says thou shalt not kill. And then you have another group that can't. And what is playing out in the Congress is we have not figured out a way as a group of people to say, you know, no, we're not going to let you, we're not going to let you control because you have the power to kill. And therefore, with that power, you have a whole bunch more money, including the power to print money. So, so that's the issue before us, and it's one, you know, I used to have a pastor in Washington who would say, if we can face it, God can fix it. As of yet, it's very difficult in America to have an honest conversation with people to get them to face it. And, and part of it has been that the average American is a beneficiary of the violence. Right now, the U.S. dollar is worth at least, you know, ten to, a multiple of ten times what its economic value is because the U.S. military controls the satellites and the sea lanes, and we can force people all around the world to take dollars when they're worth nothing. And the average American household has been the beneficiary of that situation. And, um, you know, that's why we talk about the military protecting our lives, our, our way of life. And, and until we face the fact that, that we have been the beneficiary and we have supported that um, because we have been the economic beneficiary, then it's very hard to get to real solutions. I appreciate that insight. There was a statement by Stanley Baldwin. He said war would end if the dead could return. <laughs> and in all these issues... Catherine, I see that the real victims are never given a form. Could you imagine if every human being who died because of a war in a war in the last hundred years could return and just 24-7 all we heard were their stories of their suffering, their pain, their death, and the consequences. We have a society today that again is not one single society because they're about 10% of the American population. They're very conscious. They wake up each day to make conscious choices to make their own lives better, but they're also moral enough to try to help other people in the process and not abuse the power that they have in the choices of how they use their money, how they make their money. But there's a larger percent that are indifferent and actually benefit so they don't want to go to a farmer's market. They don't care about buying organic. Only 0.4% of the food grown in the United States is grown organically. In Russia, it's 77%. They put 33 million small farmers since 1999 onto property that is not taxed. Their food is not taxed. Their labor is not taxed. They're given the land for free, and they grow most of the food in Russia. One of the few good things that came out of of uh, Russia, we refuse right. to do anything. We take away the farmer's land. If it's in the way, right. uh, uh, Monsanto is one of the biggest culprits out there to terrify farmers. And then we have bills that would put the small farmer out of business, especially organic farmers, because they can't afford the machinery that would uh, that would sterilize the seed, supposedly. So here we have people who will distract themselves in every way possible, drugs, alcohol, television, computers, social exchange areas, 
but they will never face any of the problems. You ask them about global warming, they don't want to hear about it. Acid rain, dying of the dolphins, they don't want to hear about it. They don't want to hear about it. Vaccination and the corrupt, they don't want to hear about it. They don't want to hear about anything that makes them feel uncomfortable about their life. Right. And they are what I would call the Fritz Perl family. Fritz Perl was the father of Gestalt psychology, and he said a fear of knowing is a fear of doing. So I believe that the vast amount of Americans would rather turn on Rush Limbaugh and him, hear him bloviate that everything's a problem on, because of liberals and, 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 uh, and uh, progressives. <laughs> and then you turn on the right and you hear bloviating uh, everything's a problem of the conservative and the Republicans. And both are just totally wrong. They're all at fault, and every every major found, every major institution we have has betrayed the basic moral ethic of how to first look for the needs of those that are in their flock, congregation, their family, their neighborhood, and care somewhat about them. Otherwise, now we have the average home in Detroit's worth six thousand dollars. They've turned off half the street lights. The other half are broken. Forty-four thousand yeah. don't work. So, where exactly are we supposed to see a renaissance? We're supposed to get the jobs back. How are we supposed to pay our debt, our credit card debt, our usurious interest payments? How are we supposed to stop our imperial overreach and, and the militarization, the privatization of everything, and the exploitation of what we privatize? Water. People think it's bad because they're poor. They're on a fixed income. What do you think is going to happen when they suddenly have to pay users' rates for their water or their water's turned well, off? Here's, here's the thing. In theory, there's no reason. There's no – we don't have an economic problem. If you look at all the economic problems, as a conceptual matter, they're relatively easy to solve. The problem is we have the most powerful world people in the world who don't want to solve them. They want to make them worse. So, so that leads us back to the question of who's really running things and why are they behaving – the way they're behaving, and to me, that's a question that needs to be addressed, because I will tell you one of the most critical aspects to real solutions, just as a financial person, is transparency, and here's why. I think I mentioned to you this before. My favorite book that informs real solutions is Robert Axelrod's The Evolution of Cooperation. Marvelous book. He sat down and said, okay, how can peace make more money than war? Very important question, and, and so how can people who cooperate you know, be more profitable than people who compete destructively. Did a whole bunch of computer simulations, and what he discovered is that so long as crime pays, you know, it, it, we're go always going to end in a state of war, because if I can go around the world, do some evil, hideous thing, and then come back and be admired and be a hero, then, you know, then crime's going to pay. And what I have to tell you is my experience working in Washington and Wall Street is crime pays. And I don't just mean crime pays, you know, because you make money at it. I mean crime pays because, uh, you know, that's the guy who gets the girls, the guy who engages in the worst form of genocide and the most horrible kinds of stuff. And I think the question is how can we, you know, without the help of government and without the help of corporations, start to bring transparency to these issues, and if anybody's a leader in this, it's you, Gary. How can we bring transparency so that literally everybody says, yuck, I, you know, I don't want to date them. I don't want to marry them. I don't want to go out with them. You know, Goldman Sachs partners are yucky. We need to, I love this word from Jeffrey Smith, we need to radically increase the yuck factor of people who behave this way. Now, but I have to tell you, there's no reason all these problems, all the economics problems can't be solved. 
But it does require a shift in consciousness on the part of us as a society and culture. And to me, it is it is absolutely critical for the rest of us to say, you know, if you guys are engaged and yuck, I want nothing to do with you. I'm going to go off. Because let me just give you an example. I can't tell you how many great bankers there are in this country. Great bankers, great leaders of credit unions, and every day they get up and go and work and watch us go bank at, at the banks who behave this way, you know, and engaged in all the fraud and corruption. Well, you know something? If you're putting money and you're giving your financial data to people who engage in this kind of corruption, you are taking a wild and crazy risk. Why you want to take that risk with your life and money, I have no idea. Because I will only bank with people who I admire, who I trust, who I know to be trustworthy. So part of this is, you know, we're going to have to decide that we're prepared to back the good guys and we don't want the dirty guys in our lives. I absolutely agree with that, Catherine. I think it just makes sense. But I would go a step further. I would say I will not participate in their election process. You could vote for a third-party candidate of your choice or not vote and vote and let people know that you're not voting out of protest. You I can, agree totally. You, you can get off their grid. My house is 100% solar. All right? You, right. Can do, you can do solar. You can do partial solar. You could even right. put solar fans for $150 on your roof that will get the, rid of the need for an air conditioner because it takes 90% of the heat out of your attic, which is one of the reasons that heat stays there and creates a, a heat uh, bloom throughout the house, so you need the air conditioning. When I grew up, we had an exhaust fan in the attic. We never had an air conditioner. It worked. We, we right. can go to farmer's market, food co-ops, health food stores. We can grow our own. We can share gardens with other people. We can also right. buy clothes and uh, items that we need from uh, people who uh, from people who are making sure that there wasn't slave labor used in making that item or exploited labor. We can stop buying a lot of stuff. We can spend more right. quality time with each other and actually communicate. We can turn off the blackberries and blueberries and all the other very stupid <laughs> stuff and actually look someone in the eye and, and speak with them as a human being and listen. We can stop going into McDonald's. We can... We can, right. we, we can stop going into Walmart. We can, nobody puts a gun to our head each day and tells us to do these things, nor to watch the television programs to get our insights. Do you really think you're going to get any insights that are objective from most of the media? It's very, very right. biased. Well, I would say it another way. You know, they put the poison in front of us, but we take the Twinkie the last foot. Yeah. So all we have to do yeah. is not is walk away. Just walk away from the poison and start to pay each other money to or time or admiration or whatever it is. You know, pay pay attention whether it's our purchases, whether it's our donations, whether it's our where we work, on and on and on. Every aspect of our time and money transactions and relationships, we need to make sure that the people we're dealing with are people we can trust our lives to because this is this is no longer about time or money, it's about your life. And you cannot afford to do business with um, with people that you can't trust your life to. So I think, you know, I think the hard thing for most people, Gary, is to fathom that there's a group of people out there who, who are literally trying to kill you and take everything you have. But it's really true. 
and you need to stop inviting them into your life. You need to not invite them into your mind, not invite them into your body, not invite them into your bank account, and on and on and on. And so, you know, I look at this, and to me it's spiritual warfare. Uh, you know, but then it translates into economic warfare and legal warfare and all these other kinds of warfare. And it really is war. In other words, they, you know, they want me to die. And they are happy to make money, you know, causing that to happen. And it's, but at the same time, I have the power to choose life and to choose life in a way that helps other people choose life. That gets and me, so, Catherine, that gets me to my final point here. And take your time on this one. Um, you are, without question, one of the most articulate and outspoken persons to ever work at the high end of government. You ran a whole federal agency, a big responsibility because it was a big agency. You had the year of the policymakers on Wall Street and in Washington and corporate America. And then you decided to tell people the truth of how the game is played. Have you paid consequences because of that? Have they come after you because of what you've said? Well, it happened a little bit differently. What happened was I left the Bush administration and I said, uh, you know, if, we're not, if we don't do something, the fascists are going to get control of this technology and control us all, and I need to do something, and this is an emergency. And I created an investment bank, and the goal of that investment bank, Gary, was to do I was doing two things. I was making software tools that would allow people to see the federal budget and government investment by place. And that transparency gives small businesses and households and municipalities tremendous power to re-engineer the money in their favor. So I was using the Internet to make those tools and make the data that is, as a matter of law, supposed to be available to you, truly available to you. And one of the part of the squabbles was they seized my databases and software tools and basically stole them. And that's another long, shaggy dog story. But um, but the other thing I was doing was was, was creating ways for for people in a community to, to invest liquid equity capital within their community. And that's what most people in this country want. They want to be able to buy a liquid stock in their IRA or 401k that reflects you know, a broad uh, basket of investments, including small business and venture capital and real estate in their community. So I was doing place-based equity, you know, think of stock markets for neighborhoods or mutual funds for neighborhoods. And that was going to absolutely bust the capital control of Wall Street and Washington, and they didn't want it to happen. Now, I was doing those things very quietly because it's my nature to come up with the tool or solution and then just sell it and let you know, let the market take it broadly and, and stay invisible. So, you know, I was trained by Oz, so I guess, you know, I, I like to be in the Oz position, so it was pretty quiet. Now, that transparency was bringing out tremendous truth, and the reality is the financial fraud that's occurred over the last 10 or 15 years couldn't have happened if if that had been allowed to go forward. So clearly the people who were engineering the financial fraud in the housing bubble had to stop it. And so... I was attacked over all of that. And interestingly enough, the, the person they used to attack me in part was, quote-unquote, a whistleblower, you know, accusing me of fraud. A lot of times the, these phony baloney scandals are used to do that. So I was kind of in the process. I went through a process of 18 audits 
uh, investigations, 12 tracks of litigation. I ultimately spent over $6 million on legal expenses and had very serious physical harassment and surveillance. And, um, you know, it, it, it's kind of like a train that gives, goes on forever and people get on and off. But what happened after the first couple of years when they tried to falsify evidence against us and frame us and the frame failed, we were quite lucky. Um, and I, I was very well trained and knowledgeable about how to deal with those situations. And so I was also lucky to have the knowledge and the resources. But what happened was, um, something happened where I was given a chance to do a quick settlement. And I wouldn't do it. It was 1998. And it was, what I realized was it was really a decision of, you know, am I a slave or am I free? And can they kill the people I love with impunity? and get away with it or try and kill me and get away with it. You know, it was about, is there going to be law or not? And I just said, you know something? <laughs> I came here to be free, and I'm not putting up with it. So I dug in, and it took me about, it took me a couple days to, to decide, because I'm, I'm, I'm not a fighter. It's not my nature. And I sat down, and I said, you know, I, I know I can. I know I have the skill and ability to do this fight, and I know how long and painful it's going to be. What I don't know if I can do it and come out the other side with the ability to love. And so I thought, and I said, okay, well, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to do it, but I'm going to organize everything that I do to fight this in a way that when it's over, I will have the ability to love, because without that, there's no, you know, what's the point? Um, I want to be free, and I want to be free to love and have that capacity. And so my attorneys will tell you it was quite unusual the way I organized it, but that was one of the reasons I went public, because I believed that what was happening was genocide and that I had to be free to warn people because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't live with myself. And I just have to tell you one other thing. I said to somebody the other day, I said, you know, I just sat down and counted up that if I'd invested my money in making money instead of doing Hamilton Securities Group and trying to create the software tools for neighborhoods and neighborhood equity plans and, and then not done the litigation but just said, I'm going to make money, I'm not going to fight. I would be worth $38 million today. And uh, and she looked at me and she said, yeah, but you'd be, you'd be dead because you would have died of heartbreak. <laughs> I said, you know, you're right. That's true. Mm. <laughs> Well, good so, for you I, for having the courage to fight, because in the end, you won. You yeah, were, you, yeah, hey, you, you know, won. believe That's, it or not, I won the big piece of litigation, which is a total miracle. You know, you're not supposed to be able to do that, but uh, we just had a judge who believed in the law. What can I tell you? Well, we're <laughs> we glad, were very lucky. We're glad to have you out there as a voice of, of courage and sanity on these issues, because you don't hesitate to tell it like it is. Catherine, we're out of time. Hopefully people will read more about you and read your work. They can go to solary, S-O-L-A-R-I dot com. And I look forward to another conversation with you. Gary, bless you for everything you do. You make a huge difference. Thank you. My guest, Catherine Austin Fitz, F-I-T-T-S. I'm Gary Nall. You've been listening to the Progressive Commentary Hour.